So, there is, or once was, a very highly influential thinker. His name was Friedrich Nietzsche. Some people call him Nietzsche. I am not smart enough to know which is the correct pronunciation, and I don't speak German. But he's famous for a lot of things, and one of the things he's famous for saying is this, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That was Friedrich Nietzsche who said that. And that's the question, that, that's the, the basis for the question I want to start this sermon with, is that true? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I'm sure inspired by Nietzsche, pop sensation Kelly Clarkson expounded on this theme in her hit song, Stronger, writing, you know the bed feels warmer sleeping here alone. You know I dream in color and I do the things I want. You think you've got the best of me, think you've had the last laugh, bet you think everything good is gone. Think you left me broken down, think that I come running back, baby, you don't know me, because you're dead wrong. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stand a little taller. Doesn't mean I'm lonely when I'm alone. What doesn't kill you makes you a fighter. Footsteps, even lighter. Doesn't mean I'm over, because you're gone. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, stronger. Just me, myself, and I. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stand a little taller. Doesn't mean I'm lonely when I'm alone. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Another big question. Are Kelly and Frederick right? You know, scientists, they've been studying this and trying to figure out if the phenomenon of suffering and its effect on personal development and happiness is actually a good thing or a bad thing, and they're getting mixed results. I read an article that said Nietzsche was right on a website called uh, Daily Mail, uh, written by a researcher named Mark Seary, and he said, quote, miserable life experience is bad for you, okay? Tragedy, loss, catastrophe, they can cause psychological damage. At the same time, he goes on to say that no negative life experience at all isn't healthy either and points out that living through difficult things better prepares people for future struggles. So, Dr. Leary, which is it? And it sounds like his answer could be, it depends. But on what? If miserable life experiences can either make us stronger or tear us down, how can we approach struggles in a way that we come out stronger and more whole than before? And so to tackle this question, we're going to turn to the story and experience of Joseph in the Bible, an unlikely hero of the Bible. Uh, Joseph was a person that was well acquainted with tragedy, loss, oppression, disappointment. Uh, he was sold into slavery, thrown into prison, forgotten in prison. And so he wasn't the most likely person in the world to save his entire family and an entire empire from starvation. But that's exactly what happens. And the things in his life that tried to kill him indeed do make him stronger. And what we'll see this week is that this thing called providence, the providence is the activity unceasing of God in the world in all situations to accomplish his purposes, to bring about good and reveal his glory. That's what providence is. It doesn't mean God causes uh, everything that happens, but it means he works through 
all things, to bring redemption, renewal, and healing in good things. And we're going to see how that helps Joseph come out on the other end of extreme, long-term suffering, a whole, healthy, and confident person. Does that sound interesting? And I'm hoping that we can learn from this some things that will help us when we face difficult times. So our unlikely hero this week in our unlikely hero series is Joseph. Let's read his story. It's a long one, so I'm going to break it up. Actually, it's like really, really long. We're just taking a, a little snippet of it here. This is Genesis chapter 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they, were gra- and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a seagull stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, "'Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings.'" Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled." So so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard uh, heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will provide the answer he desires. Okay, long little blip of scripture there. But I don't know if you noticed it, but it starts with the phrase, after two full years had passed. Now, that's significant because that's two years since Joseph was forgotten by the man whom he helped in prison and was supposed to plead his case before Pharaoh. So he interprets his dream and he says, don't forget me. Talk to Pharaoh about my case. I'm here under false pretenses. So it's two years after that happened. Uh when he's in jail for a crime that he didn't commit, after he'd been sold into slavery by his own brothers. Uh, So a total of 13 years of living as a slave and a prisoner for no good reason is where our story begins today. And I point this out because at this point, I don't think any of us would blame Joseph if he was completely beaten down, destroyed, wiped out. No one would blame him for pitching his faith in God or for disowning God or disavowing anything to do with the God of the Bible. After his life experience, I think that would be a pretty reasonable thing to do. But he doesn't do that. In fact, what we can learn from Joseph is that emerging from suffering stronger and deeply renewed entails a few things. 
I don't know if this is the whole story, but I think it's particularly helpful. And the first is this, define your story. Define your story. Now, why would Joseph, after all he's been through, still look to God for direction or support or help, which he, he clearly does in this passage. He says, I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now, at this point in the story, honestly, we don't know what kind of story it is yet. Because if you read the story up to this point, everything Joseph does, every step he takes to do the right thing or to get out of trouble, uh, turns itself back in on him. And he ends up in slavery or he ends up in jail or he ends up forgotten. And so if you're hearing this story, if you're reading this story, or if you're Joseph, at this point in the story, it sounds like a tragedy, right? And there's really no reason to think that Joseph isn't going to do everything right here again and end up dead or something worse. What could it be this time? Sick and die? <laughs> Will Pharaoh think that he's being manipulated by a slave and have him executed? Will Pharaoh just not believe him and take no action and everyone in the empire starve? Nobody knows. And Joseph has to decide what type of story he expects his life to be. Uh, there's a famous playwright. He's not with us anymore. His name's Arthur Miller. He was famous. He wrote, his most famous play was Death of a Salesman. And he was uh, pioneering in that to this, before Andrew Miller came along, there's this idea of who could be a tragic hero. And in the past, from the Greek, plays all the way up to now, or up to Arthur Miller, you had to be a king or a queen or a general to be a tragic figure. But Arthur Miller said, no, 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 no. The most ordinary people in the world can be tragic figures. And he wrote an essay about this called The Tragedy of the Common Man, and he said this, the flaw or crack in the character of anyone who could be a tragic hero is really nothing and need be nothing. But his, in, but his inherent unwillingness to remain passive in the face of what he conceives to be a challenge to his dignity, his image of his rightful status. Only the passive, only those who accept their lot without active retaliation are flawless. And what he's talking about is the tragic flaw. It's this idea that every tragic hero has this flaw, this part of their personality that they just can't resist that leads to their doom. And he's saying for the common person, that tragic flaw is not being passive. It's standing up to the world around them. It's saying, this isn't right, this isn't just, I shouldn't be treated this way. That, he says, is the thing that brings them to their knees and causes destruction in their life. And he goes on to say that those who stand up to the cosmos or the system around them and say, this is not right, try and battle it, terrible things happen. They're doomed to fail. That's what makes them tragic. So Joseph has to decide as he's being sold into slavery. Joseph has to decide as he's being falsely accused of attempted rape and thrown into prison. Joseph has to decide as he's left to rot in prison after helping an inmate on his way out of jail. Joseph has to decide again as he stands before Pharaoh, what type of story does he believe that he's living? Is it a tragedy? If it is a tragedy, 
he should stop rocking the boat. He should just accept his fate, and he should believe that he's destined to this lot in life and not fight for something more. So what does he decide? Well, in verse 15, it says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now, did you notice what happens there? Right here is the answer to what Joseph thinks about the life he's living. He says, I cannot do it, but God will. Now, why is that so significant? We see, Pharaoh wasn't just a king. He was also worshipped as a god. He was considered a man-god. So when Joseph says, I can't do it, but God will, he's not just being humble and saying, I can't do it, only my God can. He's actually making a point, i.e., you're not God. And he's pointing that out very specifically to Pharaoh, who has all of the power in this situation. Here's what I think. I think Jesus, Jesus, I think Joseph... (laughs) saw the system that he was living in, saw what was oppressing him, but he didn't see that system or that person as ultimate or as the final say or the final power. He says, you, Pharaoh, are not God. And he believed in a greater power, a greater king, and a greater kingdom. And this is what faith does in the middle of a situation that threatens to kill us. It empowers a person to acknowledge that events are tragic, You can acknowledge that. And this type of faith is very real. Joseph, you notice, he had to clean himself up before he even saw Pharaoh. He had to get a shave and new clothes. So his conditions in prison were real. They weren't awesome. But he refuses to see his life as a tragedy. He doesn't believe he's living in a tragedy. And so he stands right up to the power who is oppressing him because he does not see it as the ultimate power. And Joseph sees himself not in a tragedy, but in something closer to an odyssey. Do you know what an odyssey is? An odyssey is a long journey with lots of twists, lots of turns, where lots of things go wrong. But the people persevere, and in the end, they overcome. That's an odyssey. They're journeys. Sometimes they seem to wander but they eventually end in a good place. So our question, I think, today is, is your story a tragedy or an odyssey? And Providence would say that our stories are not tragedies. And this is why this is important, particularly when you're facing difficult things. This is the space, I think, that our souls need for hope, And it's hope that keeps us from moral and mental destruction. It's this that protects our well-being and emboldens us to continue to take action, even when circumstances would suggest that we should give up. That there's a bigger story going on that gives us reason to stand up to oppression. That there's a good God working and bending things towards a good end. This is Joseph's hope. And it's ours. But to live this way, it's not easy. And one of the implications is 
that we have to leave room for God's timing. Pharaoh tells uh, Joseph the dreams. It says in verse 25, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of the Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now... Let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store them up and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine." The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all of my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And this is what happens. Joseph is put in charge of this massive project, and they save grain during the abundant years and have it to spare during the famine. And thousands of lives are saved because of Joseph's actions, interpreting the dreams and administrating the famine relief program. Now, imagine that the cupbearer had remembered Joseph two years earlier. And what if Joseph had pled his case and Pharaoh was, right. Pharaoh was like, you're right, you're free to go. What do you think Joseph would have done? If you were in a foreign land and your family was in another land, you were finally set free, what would you do? Head right back to your family as fast as you can, right? So as the famine approached, there would have been no one to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, no one to prepare them for the famine, and no grain to save all the people who were saved, including Joseph's family. That would have been a tragedy. It's not pretty. It's not easy. But this is what life looks like when it's lived as an odyssey. This is a providential life, a life where God does not control people like robots so that they never do anything wrong, but a life where the wrong that is done is turned into something good at just the right time. Sometimes when is just as important as what. And this, and you're probably all feeling this right now, is a hard way to live because it's painful sometimes. And I think a lot of us want a faith, whether we realize it or not, that just takes all the pain out of our lives. The thing is, that's not a real faith. 
because that's not the real experience of life in this world. That wasn't Jesus' experience of life in this world. But if that's you, in this sense, and that you find yourself in a very difficult situation, let me just encourage you to leave some room for God to be working on your behalf in a way that you can't see. I'm not saying you, do, you become passive. We already talked about that. I don't think Joseph is a passive person at all. <laughs> the way he interacts with Pharaoh is not very passive. I'm not saying be passive, but I'm saying leave some room for God to be at work when you can't see it, on your behalf in a good way. Because it's this room, just enough faith to consider that maybe God is up to something lovely that can't be seen yet, that can spare your soul, that can create a space for you to develop and even be made whole in the middle of tragic situations. So that at the end of the day, you can do what Joseph does, and that is he's actually able to appreciate the blessings of God in his life. So look at the person by the end of this passage that Joseph becomes. He doesn't seem damaged by his 13-year ordeal in the end, does he? He's humble, yet confident. So in verse 33, he says, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. So he's just telling Pharaoh what he should do. This is Joseph, by the way, an imprisoned minority slave telling the king what to do. He's humble. He points everything back to God. But boy, is he confident. That's not That's a whole person. It's not a broken down person. His sense of identity is still intact. He's a whole person. He hasn't been crushed by all of the horrible things that have happened to him. And if there's any doubt of of that, notice how the story ends. In verse 50 it says, Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all of my trouble and all of my, father, and all, and all of my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now, a lot of my friends have been having new babies over the past several years. Anyone have any friends having new babies? Noticing that? <laughs> Becca and I have had two. And later in the service, there will be proof of that. And what I've noticed is that parents put a lot of thought into what they name their kids. Parents have nine months to think about it. It's rarely a snap decision. And sometimes parents are just looking for a name that sounds good, right? No one wants their kid to be teased. You don't want anything that ends in oopy. Don't name your kid Snoopy. I don't know, I don't know a lot of oopy. Because you know what rhymes with anything that ends in oopy, right? You got to think about those things. You don't want your kids teased. You don't want their name turned into something that could be a joke. Sometimes parents are looking for ways to honor their family. 
Sometimes they're looking to say something important about what they value. So I have friends who name their child Justice. Or a good friend of mine, every time he has a child, he has that child's name tattooed on his body. My point is that the names we choose for our children are important. We don't choose them lightly, and we have lots of time to ponder the possibilities. So when Joseph's first child is born, he names his first son Manasseh. And Manasseh sounds like the Hebrew word for forget. It's like he's saying where he is now in his story is so good, it overpowers or makes him forget all the trouble it took for him to get there. And then he names his second son Ephraim, which means double fruitful, as if Joseph can see the fruit or the good things that God has done through his suffering. Have you guys ever seen the movie uh, Inside Out? It's a Pixar movie, animated. In case you haven't seen it, I'll give you enough background so you know what's going on. Uh, I will try not to ruin the movie for you, although you've had your chance. It's been a long time. Inside Out is this movie where you're able to see into the mind of a little girl. I think she's a great schooler. And inside her brain, there's a con- or inside her head, there's a control panel. And you have all these different uh, cool, funny little characters that represent emotions, right? And so you've got happy emotion, you've got sad emotion, you've got anger, you've got all of these different things. And sometimes they're competing for control of the little girl's brain, right? Well, one of the things they do, anytime a memory happens, this little globe or sphere pops up, and it's a certain color that corresponds to the color of that emotion. So I think, I think uh, happiness was yellow, I can't remember, and sadness was blue, right? And so if there's a sad memory, a little blue globe uh, pops up, and it's saved in her memory, right? And then if it's happiness, a yellow globe pops up. Well, things happen in this little girl's life uh, where... She has to move across country, happens in the beginning, spoiler alert, and she doesn't, starts to feel sad for the first time in her life. And one of the things that happens is that sadness actually begins to touch old memories that were yellow. Now they get a tinge of blue, and they start to become green. And so memories of playing in her old hometown, which used to be nothing but a positive memory, begin to change colors. Right? And so I'll let you see the rest of the movie. But I point that out because I think what we see with Joseph is the opposite. All of these blue memories are stored in his memory brain. But because of where his life ends and where it, uh, this odyssey takes him, it's as if that begins to touch all of those tragic memories and change the color. Until finally... The overarching color of his life and even those memories are shaded towards yellow, joy, happiness. And that's the effect of providence in our lives. God reaching back into the past. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book uh, about heaven and hell, uh, which was called The Great Divorce. And he describes it this way. Uh, There's an angel who takes someone on a tour of heaven and hell and Here's what he says to help the person he's taking on to understand it. He says, That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. The processes begin even before death. 
the good man's past, or good person. Sorry all these people are writing from the past, and this definitely applies to women as well. The good person's past begins to change so that uh, his or her forget so that his forgiven sins or her forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. And that is why the blessed will say, we've never lived anywhere except in heaven. This is the bigger story that Joseph is counting on throughout the first chapters of his life and begins to experience at the end of our chapters today. This isn't just some hope for the afterlife type thing. This is an experience for here and now in your life, right now, where you are, what you're experiencing, what you're pushing through, what you're suffering through. The message of Joseph isn't just hang in there until you die, and then maybe you'll be rewarded. It's hang in there until your odyssey, until your story becomes an odyssey, not a tragedy. And the hope of providence is simply this, that it will all be worth it. The hope that there is a higher good power at work, that at the right time things will come together as they should, and that it will all be more than worth it in the end. It's this perspective, providence, that enables Joseph to live through such horrible things and still keep his sanity, fulfill his purpose in life, and even come out on the other end healthy, whole, happy, and thankful. What doesn't kill you can make you stronger as providence empowers a life that's not tragic but meaningful. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm just struck by how every character, figure from Scripture that we focus on as an unlikely hero has something in their life that they could say, how could a good God allow this to happen? And I thank you for the grace poured out in their lives uh, to give them just enough hope and faith uh, to believe that their life is not a tragedy, uh, but they're on a journey, an odyssey. Father, for us, wherever we are in our lives, uh, give us that hope. And if we've experienced it, help us to tell our story so we can keep each other going. In Jesus' name, amen.